Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Limitless podcast where we bring you the global leaders in sales and marketing to share their experiences, insights and most importantly actionable inputs that you can readily implement in your jobs. Today we are going to discuss about acquisition and growth strategy for digital companies, especially how you can identify, prioritize and scale acquisition channels and platforms. To talk about this, we have a special guest with us. We have Nikki Friss, the founder of growth advisory firm Nikki, uh, to talk about this topic and share his experiences and how he helps companies to scale their growth. Uh, to tell a bit about Nikki, uh, Nikki has uh, comes with a wealth of experience. He is the founder of uh, three companies. Uh, his previous two companies, he has grown to a scale of. Uh, team of 20 plus and both the companies are still growing as i mentioned earlier he comes with a wealth of experience over 10 plus uh, and he has been there done that right from seo scm to growth and helping other companies as well uh, so if you are looking to grow your company or still haven't figured out an acquisition strategy or if you're even wondering what channels or platform works for you uh, this podcast should be definitely useful for you so tune in uh, hello nikki welcome to limitless Hi Vivek, thank you so much for having me on your show today. I'm excited to talk to your audience and to talk about about acquisition channel strategy, acquisition matrix, growth strategy and everything in that regard. Thank you. Brilliant. Uh, So Nikki, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, your story, where do you come from, how did you get started, then a bit about Nikki. (laughs) Thank you so much. So my name is Nikki Fries. I'm 26. I'm from Copenhagen, Denmark. I've actually been uh, been living in India for three months, uh, once in uh, in 2015, and have a lot of Indian friends. If it's uh, the Indian audience who is tuning in to this, I, I can say some words in a, in a, in a Hindi, but uh, I'll spare you for this <laughs> as of now. Um, anyway, I started my first company when I was only 16 wow. in uh, in Denmark. I started um, going to parties when I was only 13. It's 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 different over here at the culture with drinking and everything. It's, it's way different. Mm-hmm. And basically I started the first business within, you can say the event space and kind of promoting parties basically. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, back in 2015, uh, I was a part of starting a company called IdeaNode, which has uh, 20,000 plus companies uh, using that software worldwide. Awesome. Companies like Disney, General Electric, and a lot of other well-known companies that you are familiar with. And in 2017, I was a part of co-founding another company called PatRenewal.com, which is a pet renewal management software. So dealing with intellectual property rights. And I'm not a part of both of those companies today, even though that I own shares, because I love growing things. And I don't like, you can say, having the overhead of a lot of employees dealing with HR, legal stuff, compliance, governance, and all these other things. I just want to grow things. That's what I like. I can totally understand that. Okay, awesome. Uh, so tell us a bit about uh, your growth advisory firm. What do you do and how you help companies? Yeah, thank you so much. So, I mean, what I do is that I help companies that are digital platform companies. They have a digital business model of any kind. It could be SaaS companies, social platforms, e-commerce subscription businesses. And what I help them with is basically finding out where are their growth constraints currently And what I mean by that is that what is currently limiting their growth? Why aren't they scaling as fast as they could? And sometimes we also kind of look at product market fit. And what I mean by that is that are they, are they even ready to scale basically? Mm -hmm. 
So before you can say we help them with scale, we need to understand is the product that they currently have the right product for their particular market. And we have four step process, but basically we diagnose what are the constraints, what are the problems, what are the challenges first. And then after we have diagnosed the problem correctly, then we start prescribing, you can say, solutions to that problem and help them strategize around it and basically also teach people how to improve upon this themselves because I don't want to be a consultant that comes in and provide you with a huge deck of methodologies and strategies and all these other things. I want you to actually being able to apply it afterwards and also improve upon it. So I try to make myself dispensable after, you can say, yeah, our strategy engagement. Awesome. Uh- so uh, you talked about a four-step process. Uh, say, for example, uh, I come to you and I say, Nikki, hey, I have a company or a product and I've been uh, trying to grow and I have so-and-so problems and I want you to help me out. So uh, how do you get started? What are the first things you look at? Uh, I know it's a long process, but if you can some way simplify, is there a framework or something so that uh, a person listening to this can, okay, this is a model. Maybe uh, I can start looking at it this way. Is there a framework or methodology in place? Definitely. So how I see it is that before you can say product market fit. So if you are a company right now who are not sure you have product market fit, Mm -hmm. I'm probably not the best to work with you. I can do that, but I'm probably not the best. Typically how I see it is that it's a positioning problem. If you don't have product market fit, it's probably something with your positioning. Maybe you are not targeting the right audience or maybe the message is wrong or maybe there's something else that you need to work on first. So where I'm coming in typically is after a product has found their product market fit. And then I basically help optimize that. And how I do it again is that first, I need to understand what is your product doing? How does it work? How is your business model working? And what kind of market are you operating in? And who are your users? I need to understand these four things first. When I had that intel, when I have that information, then I can dive into the data. So I look at the acquisition data and I look at the retention data. And when I say retention data, I want to get, get deep into the retention data to understand, okay, so let's say you have thousand users. How many of these users are coming back on a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, basis, quarterly basis, etc.? What kind of functionalities or features within your product are they actually using? In order for me to understand what is necessary, what is not necessary, and where is the problem, basically. So that's step two, analyzing the data. First, diagnosing, you can say the problem. That's the step one and step two. Then the third step here is the strategy part of it. So based on my diagnosis, based on the analysis, I come up with opportunities that we can pursue. So let's say there's, let's say I'm a doctor. And Vivek, you come in to me. You say, I have this problem. I don't exactly know what it is, but, but can you kind of help me? I have these symptoms. Okay, so what I will do first is that, of course, I'll do MRI. I will scan you. I'll kind of listen to your symptoms and kind of figure out what's going wrong, what's going on here. Okay, then because of my knowledge, I will say, okay, you may have this, you may have this, you may have this, you may have this. Okay, in order to treat these symptoms, you can either take this type of medication, this type of medication, or this type of medication. That's the same, you can say, way that I'm doing it. So first, I'm kind of figuring out what's going on. Then I come up with different solutions. And then what I do is that I strategize around which of these solutions is the best suited for you. That can be the 
highest indicator of future success. That's the strategize part. And then I provide you with a step-by-step -step process for how you can actually do these things, how you can build the strategy into your, your product, into your business. So it's kind of like a doctor who is kind of telling you, okay, I'm prescribing you with these medicines. You also have to, uh, to exercise twice a week. You have to eat more healthy. You have to get your weight down to this level, you know, kind of giving you a step-by-step -step process of how to optimize your health and your well-being. And then fourth, again, the fourth step here is that I actually want to help you do it. So if I'm a doctor here, I'll give you a manual. I'll give you some information about how to actually get started with exercising, how to take the meds, how to eat healthy. And that's basically the same way I see my firm. So before I dive into acquisition and retention, I have one question. This I ask a couple of people. Uh, one is when you say product market fit, uh, is there any indicator that clearly shows, okay, there is a product market fit, there isn't? Yes. Uh, is. What, what is that? <laughs> so a clear indicator, if you have product market fit or not, is looking at your retention curve. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is let's, let's say you have a thousand users. Over a period of time, how many of these thousand users are still using your product? And what needs to happen is that, let's say, over a period of, let's say, three months, you need your retention curve to flatten at some point. So let's say after three months, out of the thousand users, you still have 100 users retained, and you can see that it's flattening. The 100 users keep retaining month over month. It's a small percentage out of the thousand, but it needs to flatten at any point. Let's say that you have 1,000 uh, users again, and by the end of month three, you don't have any more of those specific users left, then you do not have a product market fit. And what I mean by this is that if you look at, let's say, a cohort, and what I mean by cohort is that if you are getting 1,000 users this week, how many of those specific 1,000 users are still retained over three months? Of course, of course, you can layer new users on top. But we want to understand if the same users that signed up three months ago are still retained over this specific period of time. That's a clear indicator if you have product market fit or not. And then you can, so how I also see it is that when you figure out that your retention curve is flattening, then you can start layering acquisition strategies on top of it. And what I mean by that is that if you have, let's say you have a funnel, traditional marketing funnel of any kind, if it's leaking, so let's say that for every user you get in, one gets out, then it's very hard to kind of have a foundation to grow on top of it. So that's why we want to have, you can say, a flattening retention curve because then you can basically, okay, so let's say 10% of all the users that we get, they stay over a, a period of a year, just to come up with a hypothetical example. And then we can basically optimize on that, but we also know that for every new user we acquire, the percentage of them staying over a long-term period is 10%, right? Yep. And that's really the, the, the kind of data that we want to look into if we want to understand if what stage of our company that we actually are in, Brilliant. in my opinion, of course. No, this is perfect because uh, most of the time I uh, get answers like, hey, if your customer is re recommending your product, if your NPS score is about eight or nine, uh, then there's a product market fit. But uh, yeah, th these are actually true. But 
if I want to examine today, uh, this sounds perfect to me because all I have to do is I don't have to look at, of course, my conversion percentage could be low, as you said, 10% or 5%. But I think what you said is if the flat curve, uh, the retention graph flattens over a period of time, that means uh, it is stable. Now you have achieved product market fit. You can improvise it or take it forward later. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And what is important to stay? So let's say that only 5% or maybe 10% of the users are staying. That's your, you can say your target audience, because these are the people who love your product. These are the people who have a high net promoter score. Mm -hmm. These are the people that you want more of because they get value out of using your product. Otherwise they won't continue using it, of course. And then you can double down on that specific audience, figure out, okay, what was the, what was the onboarding path that they took? What kind of features and functionalities are they using every day or every week or whatever your metric is, right? And then you can also use your marketing and acquisition efforts on getting more of that specific user. Just to sum it up for you, all you guys, uh, look at the, once your product market is fit, right? When your acquisition, sorry, retention curve flattens, look at the people who are staying with you for over a period of time. And these are the people who you want to target. Awesome. Yes. Uh, so uh, let's dive into acquisition. Okay. Um, so how do I channel, choose a channel that is a good fit for my company? There are okay. plenty of channels and there is a lot of buzz going around. Okay. And there is always <laughs> a problem of, should I be here or should I be everywhere? That is always there. Okay. So I'm going to lay out a five-step process to choose your acquisition, a customer acquisition channel. And this is a process that I'm using in my firm as well. And typically we actually don't help a lot of customers choosing acquisition uh, channels because they have so many other issues that are, you can say, way more foundational than just acquisition channels. Okay. But how I see it is that your acquisition channels are the channels that feed traffic into your product. When you feed traffic into your product, you also need that specific traffic to work as an acquisition channel itself. So your product can also be an acquisition channel. And what you see with something like LinkedIn, LinkedIn have these referral loops, Dropbox have referral loops, and there's other platforms out there who is also, you can say, having product marketing built into the product. So just to kind of clear that. So I see acquisition channels as, as a traffic source kind of thing. Okay. So first off, when you are kind of looking into what kind of acquisition channel should you go for? First step is that you need to understand what you are optimizing for. And what I mean with this is that different times call for different things. And let's say, for example, something like uh, COVID-19 that everybody is experiencing right now, a customer acquisition channel is probably not events, like physical events, because there's no way that people can attend these events. And you need to understand kind of like, where are your cost, where is, where is your target audience? Where are they right now? Are they using Facebook a lot? Are they going to, I don't know, niche forums? Could be something like, I don't know if I'm, if I'm a car manufacturer. Are they going to car manufacturing forums out there or Facebook groups and all of these different things? So you have to understand that different times call for different acquisition channels. Yes. Then secondly, 
you need to understand what are the constraints. And the constraints depend on the product, the stage, the amount of funding, and the industry that you are in. And I can kind of talk a little bit more about what do I actually mean with that as well. And then the third step here is that you need to weigh the pros and the cons of the different channels. Peter Thiel, um, one of the earliest investors in Facebook and uh, the co-founder of PayPal, um, he said once that um, there's probably out of all the different acquisition channels that you have, there's, there's almost always one channel that is delivering 80% of the results. So what he basically means is that there's typically one channel that you have to prioritize and focus on. And what he also says is that almost no company get one channel to work like profitably. So if you can find one channel that works and where you see, okay, for every money, for every penny that I put in, I get three pennies out or whatever that number may be, then you are actually quite far. It's only the best of the best companies that actually have multiple acquisition channels. So this is of course, looking at it from a, a statistic point of view. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then of course you have to kind of, so when you have the pros and cons of the different marketing channels, then you also have to get enough information, information about these channels to kind of make an educated comparison of which one that you should choose and focus on. And I can talk a little bit more about that as well. Mm-hmm. But, but another thing that I want to say here, and what we typically advise our customers and clients to do is that there's something called traction channels and something that is called growth channels. And what I mean with that is that typically when you are starting up a company, you are going to focus on traction channels. And the traction channels are channels that don't necessarily scale. Mm-hmm. So let's say again that I'm a, I'm a digital platform. I work with the car manufacturing companies or car dealers or something like that. My traction channel may be uh, auto uh, industry magazines, car forums, Facebook groups with the people working in, in car manufacturing. All these, you can say these niche channels where you can get the initial traction. So what is a traction channel is ideally a channel where you know by a very high certainty that your target audience is right there. Let's say that you are using Facebook instead, like Facebook ads. That is what I call a growth channel. So when you run a Facebook ad, you are not certain to the same level of degree that you are hitting the right audience. But why it's a growth channel as well is that you can scale it almost infinitely. But with a car forum, there's only, only let's say, 0.000% 0.000% of your target audience is in that specific forum, right? But on Facebook, let's say 70% of your entire market is on Facebook and you can probably hit them there. So that's kind of also how I distinguish between these two channels. And in the beginning, I would definitely just focus on traction channels to kind of get to a certain level where I can see that my retention curve is flattening. Again. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, 
now when i'm looking at channels so you said like most companies have uh one channel that is working for you or if at all if one channel is working very well for you then you should stick with it that's a good thing now uh there are couple of channels ahead of me now how do i know that there is an opportunity in this channel yes so what i would do first is that i would kind of figure out there's certain parameters that you want to you can say analyze the different channels across so one of them is cost mm-hmm. you want to understand okay so if i'm if i'm doing organic uh, i mean seo if people are going to find me on on google it has this amount of cost the cost here is typically the labor you have to put some time into creating articles and everything but it doesn't cost you anything up front like it does with let's say paid ads facebook for example it costs you money so you want to kind of first understand okay so let's say there's all these different channels and you can kind of find the the book called traction you can kind of see that there is these 19 different channels or whatever it is and it's typically sem so search engine marketing that is Uh, google ads it's display ads and all of these things then you have seo search engine optimization people finding you on search engines virality you have sales you have uh, uh, paid uh, social which is uh, paid ads on linkedin instagram facebook snapchat pinterest etc 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 and then you can have events you can have conferences you can have all these different channels basically that you can possibly use and even th- even you can say underneath that you can also you can see go even more in depth so you can say okay so within paid social we also have facebook instagram snapchat all these different channels so you can go even more and you can say in depth with specific channels okay but what you want to figure out so let's say you have all a big list of different channels then you want to you can say you want to uh, compare cost you want to compare what i call targeting and what i mean by targeting is that how 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 good is this specific channel at targeting your right audience so let's say with a with a traction channel the targeting is quite high you know that the people that you are getting your message in front of are the right people with let's say something like pr so you're getting a, you're getting a a big article in a, in let's say the new york times almost all type of people are reading the new york times uh, business owners it could be uh, i don't know lawyers doctors and all of these different audiences so you also kind of want to know what is the targeting level here let's say something like linkedin you can be super specific on linkedin so is the target is the targeting uh, opportunity is it high is it medium or is it low again with the cost you can say is it low is it high is is it very high is it medium kind of like what does it cost sales having a sales team has high cost um working on uh, seo it has a low cost paid social it can have a range right you can spend a little bit of money or you can spend a lot of money okay then another thing here is that you also want to look at control so do you control this channel something like um like seo you can control you can say the the content pieces that you are pushing out there but it's probably very hard for you to kind of control the amount of reach that you are going to get another thing of course is that you have to think about you can say do you do you own the traffic that you get for example with emails if you are converting your traffic into email you 
own this channel. That is something that is uniquely yours and you can send as many emails as you want to that specific audience. If you are using something like Facebook, you do not own the people they are targeting and it will cost you more to pursue more, you can say more reach within that specific channel, right? If it makes sense. It makes yeah. perfect sense. Another thing that you want to measure here is input time. So let's say with something like SEO, the input time may be quite high or maybe medium. You want to write a very quality content piece here. Maybe it could also be a webinar, it could be a podcast, it could be a lot of different things, ebooks, et cetera, et cetera. But something like, let's say, SEM, just putting up a Google ad on, on, on Google, I would say, because I'm experienced here, the input time is quite low. I need to write a couple of lines. I have to uh, identify an audience that I want to target. The input time is low. Yep. So what is the amount of resource that you have to put into this channel in order for it to be, to, to kind of, to get your message out there? Then another thing that you want to, want to think about is the output time. So something like SEO, it can take six months for your article to rank high on Google, right? So the output time is quite high, but with something like, let's say paid social, getting an, uh, an ad in front of uh, the right audience on Facebook, the output time is quite low. Typically when I run uh, ads, uh, I can see that I get an, uh, an output within one day. Compared that to, to, let's say, SEO, that will take six months. Yeah. Of course, what you have to think about is that your article, your, your article that you have put out there, it will compound over time. Yeah. Yeah. If, if it's good, of course. <laughs> it can also <laughs> just die. Um, yes. And then the last thing here is the amount of scale. So back to the, the definition of traction channels and growth channels. You want to understand what is the scaling opportunities within these specific channels. So something like Facebook again, or Google, the scale uh, potential is, is very high. Something like, I don't know, word of mouth or specific niche forums, the scale is quite low. So you want to take all these different, you can say parameters, and then you need to kind of figure out what makes sense for us. Let's say if the cost is, is high, then maybe we do not have, you can say the amount of funding right now or liquidity to pursue this specific channel right now. And other thing that I actually want to mention here, which is even more foundational before you kind of choose your, your channel, is you want to look at what, what we call the ARPU-CAC spectrum. What I mean by that is ARPU is the average revenue per user. And the CAC, of course, is the customer acquisition cost. You want to kind of identify that if your average revenue per user it has to be higher than the cost of acquiring a new customer. So let's say for a company like Facebook, the, the average revenue per user is very, very low. They need a huge volume. So they, can, yeah, so they cannot afford to have a high CAC. Mm -hmm. They have to survive on virality or organic traffic. They would not, let's say that Facebook uh, hired a sales team to, uh, to pursue all the users that is on, on Facebook. The, the, the cost of acquiring a new user would definitely be too high for Facebook to sustain, right? On the other side, if you have, let's say an enterprise digital platform of any kind, where you kind of have customized uh, solutions, you, can have, you probably have a high average revenue per user, 
and therefore you can afford to have higher customer acquisition cost and acquire, let's say, hire a sales team. So you need to know kind of like where on this spectrum are you? What makes sense for you? And typically how you see it is that on the left-hand side where the average revenue per user is low, you want to go for something like virality or organic traffic. Then if we just go a little bit ahead, something like MailChimp, they have a quite, uh, they have the freemium version and they have like a premium version and they have different, you can say, options. It would make sense for a company like MailChimp to go with something like paid ads. It's not as expensive as a sales team and they can kind of, uh, they can keep their, uh, the amount they spent on a low side to ensure profitability. And then you can say on the, on the other side, we have something like uh, HubSpot, who do also have a freemium version and a free trial and they have all these other things and then they also have a premium version. For something like HubSpot, they have chosen to go with the inbound marketing kind of way where you produce some content, you generate leads, you warm these leads up and then you try to kind of uh, convert them uh, to, to some degree. And they can afford to have this inbound marketing channel working because the average revenue is lower than the cost it, acquire, it, it acquires them to spend. And then again, on the, on the right-hand side over here, let's say it's an enterprise sales uh, solution or software. They need to, let's say they have a sales team hired and they need to have multiple meetings with a customer in order for them to close them. So you kind of need to understand where are you on this spectrum in order to make this comparison of the different channels and the different um, ways of comparing them. Awesome. Did it make sense, Vivek? Perfect, perfect. It makes perfect sense. Uh, so you start with identifying the traction channels, then putting an effort into it until you get the product market fit, then you go to the great channels. But uh, before you go into that, you look at all the factors, starting from the time, cost, and the effort required. Then you go into very specific such as ARPU and CAC, customer acquisition cost. Uh, so because you mentioned uh, average revenue per user, because that makes a big difference because that determines what am I allowed to spend, what I can afford to spend on a particular platform. And in one of your blogs, you had mentioned that uh, most companies uh, fix their pricing based on competitors. Whereas uh, there are better ways. One way you had suggested is using Van Westendorp's uh, methodology. And it's a, I remember studying it in university. Uh, but after reading that, I realized, holy shit, I've really never used it anywhere. And, uh, or most of the time I didn't have the opportunity to work in pricing, but that being said, I don't really remember like not every company uses it. And as you had mentioned, most often it is, okay, my competitor has price DX and I'll go with Y. Uh, so the question is, have you done any experiment, like, uh, some exercise for your, one of your clients or any time in the past? And if so, like, how does it actually unfold? With the, with pricing your yeah. product optimal? Uh, no, increasing your average revenue per user. Mm -hmm. ah. So, so there's different ways of, of going about this. Mm -hmm. um, first thing, you 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 need your retention curve to flatten. Okay. Otherwise, it, it it probably won't make sense for you to increase your prices. Yeah. <laughs> um, because then will probably just be more expensive, and you will get lower traction. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so first of all, when you work with you can say monetization efforts, which is increasing your prices, is one way of doing that. Another way is to add other, you could say, products to it 
or increase the monetization path. There's different ways to go about this. So you want users that are satisfied with your, with your product and your solution. And you also want to have certain amount of, you can say, new acquisitions on a weekly or monthly basis. Then what you can do and what, what, is, what is, you can say, one of the easiest way to increase your revenue is to work on your pricing. Because typically how people and new cost, uh, companies start uh, pricing their services are by looking at either competitors or just guessing. And when they look at competitors, what they do is that either they price under the competitors, the same as the competitors, or higher, or higher than their competitors. But in my opinion, that is the wrong way to go about it. What you need to figure out is kind of like, what kind of value do your users, your, the users that love you, what kind of value do they want to pay for? And how to go about it. And I have a webinar um, that people are free to kind of sign up for if they want, where I explain this in detail. Well, I'll, I'll make sure I add the link to the description of the podcast. Cool. So it's a five-step process. And, and just kind of just briefly, you, you need to understand, first of all, you need to find out what personas are you actually having here. So when you look at your retention curve and you look at your data and the people who are retained and kind of using your product, what kind of personas are they? There may be one to two personas, maybe three personas. And typically what you have is that you have, and you see this with SaaS products all the time, they have like a basic package, a gold package, and a premium package. Just to come up with an, a hypothetical example. So it's typically a, for a SaaS company, a, the startups, a, the SMBs, and then the enterprise. Exactly. Typically, right? And so you want to kind of identify the personas. And there's different ways to do this. And there's right ways and wrong ways. Mm-hmm. So when you have defined your personas, what you want to do is that you need to understand what are they valuing here? And we use something called the max differential question method as well. And how typically is, is that when you just ask users kind of like important to you uh, of, of um, certain things and you can rate them from a scale from one to 10 and then they, you can say, I like uh, this on a, on a scale of six and this on a scale of four and, and et cetera. It, it, it makes it very difficult for you to understand what is most important to them. Because the data can be, um, when you kind of look at the data afterwards and try to analyze it, it will be very hard to kind of identify what doesn't really make sense. And when you use the max differential question, what you get is that you get, um, you can say it's on a scale from zero to one. And then you kind of know exactly what do people really value and what do they not value. And how it works is that you say, let's say you have five different options and people can choose which of these things do you not value and one of these things do you value. So it's either or. And then of course you need an amount of respondents here to get, you could say, a valid data to actually kind of base your analysis upon. What is the ideal sample size you would suggest? It really depends on your industry and the amount of users you have. And so let's say it's an enterprise uh, solution here. Um, it may be, I don't know, 20 okay. would maybe be the minim- minimum here. If you have something like Facebook, <laughs> just to come up with an example, you probably need 
scale of like thousand or something like that, maybe maybe just a few hundreds to kind of identify the, the right price point here. Okay, so you need to understand kind of like what are they valuing? And the reason for why you want to do this, of course, is that you want your, your price to be on, on one kind of value metric. For example, some, something like, um, let's say, lead pages or Insta pages are unbounds and these landing page builders. You typically pay per landing page that you can create or maybe per lead. So let's say that they have a free version uh, of lead pages and you can create a landing page there, but you pay, so let's say you get 100 uh, leads for free, but after that you need to pay. And it's very genius of them to price it that way. Because let's say that it, it uh, let's say that your landing page is converting very high number. Then of course they wanna pay when they hit the maximum of 100 people. So they price on, on value because there's a value in getting more leads, if it makes sense. So it's a value metric, right? And I don't so, mind paying as well once I'm getting those leads. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's kind of like the way you want to go. And there's different ways to do it as well. One, one way is like figuring out your value metric and there's all the ways to kind of do this. But when you have all this inf- intel and you have all of this information and these data, then you can kind of figure out, okay, so these are the different features that we want to price for. Okay, what you then do is that you use uh, the Van Westendorf method here. And what it basically does is, is also a kind of survey where you figure out, okay, so uh, there's, there's four different questions and you basically ask the, the, the users again, you kind of provide them with an overview. This is, this is what you would pay for if you were to be, become a user at our firm. And of course you list all the different value metrics that you have. Then you ask them these four questions, which is really much about um, when, um, how much would you pay for this, uh, where it would be. Um, when do you consider it too expensive? When do you consider it to be too cheap? When exactly. do you consider it to be a bargain? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. You ask them these four questions. And what you do afterwards is that you get all this data and then you basically use a, and you put it into a graph. And you can basically see, okay, so there's an area here. There's a range. So within, let's say, 10 to $20, this is the optimal range for our prices to, to, to um, that is what our, our users want to spend. If it's underneath 10, then they would probably not believe in the quality of it. If it's over 20, then they, they don't believe it's enough value for the bucks. And of course, what you can do then is that you can see, okay, where does these lines intersect? So let's say that they intersect at $15. And then that will probably be the most optimal price for your specific users and, and customers. Awesome. And the reason for why you need to do this and not look at your competitors is that your product is different. Your market is different. Um, the service that you are delivering is different. Yep. You are different than your competitors. Therefore, you should also price yourself differently. Um, and then of course you have to put some qualitative reasoning into it as well afterwards. And the way that you present it on your website or in your material, it's also different. And, and I mean, again, in the webinar, I, I explained this in full detail. If, if people are more interested. <laughs> it's a very in-depth topic and uh, it's definitely half an hour or an hour is not, is required for this. Uh, <laughs> but I got the gist of it. So you start with the, 
understand why your customers are using your product then you go into how much are you willing to pay for the product then uh, so most companies don't use it or at least uh, quite not everybody uses it while it makes sense you should be using it because let your customers say that how much is the right price for your product uh, tell me one thing like uh, if for companies who don't follow it like why should i follow it tell me something that can convince me okay <laughs> hard hitting fact or something do you have something like that i i have a lot of hard hitting facts but i i want to i want to give you a qualitative one instead <laughs> i mean you are typically leaving money on the table that you could <laughs> could get uh-huh. in in a day or two if you just price your product right mm-hmm. i mean you want to price what your clients want to pay mm-hmm. right yep. and uh, and typically nobody is doing that so I mean, what what other fact is there that you're probably leaving money on the table and you're pro- pro- probably pricing yourself too low? <laughs> Makes sense. Almost everybody is doing this if they have just guessed or looked at competitors for mm-hmm. pricing. And I also want to mention that like the Van Westendorf and the Max Differential question kind of approach to it is not necessarily the right one. It's just the easiest one, yep. in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one more thing, these models have been there for like what? over 15 20 years and uh, yeah as you said it is not necessarily the best one for you maybe but uh, it's the easiest one and has stood the test of time yes exactly uh, i mean if you if you have a huge data scientist team and you have a lot of users and a lot of money to spend there's other there's other uh, ways of an, uh, an analyzing the optimal price point that you can going to pursue but if you're a startup or yeah. you're just starting up and you maybe even don't have any money or have a little little i mean a little revenue and kind of just getting started or maybe you are also six years into it but you are still not uh, i mean you have some users and you have some growth and you have some revenue but still not optimal then this is for you mm-hmm. but if you are a huge company like amazon or something like that there's other ways to yeah. do it but this is much much better than any guesswork and it does provide value uh nikki you also talked about uh virality uh, when you were mentioned talking about uh channels that doesn't give you uh high customer sorry high lifetime value cost or average revenue per user so you talked about virality and also you talk about uh having a structured approach towards creating viral content or viral marketing and initially also mentioned about dropbox and those companies they had like huge success uh, so how can i is there a structured way first of all or is it just hit or miss or is there a way so you can have a structured approach so that you have the best chance of your content or marketing go viral yes there is <laughs> it's a very deep topic and okay. we could probably speak for this for days uh, but let me let me kind of start out with that there's different uh, viral uh, loops as i call it and you can build virality into your product in different ways and, and typically you will do that by creating a loop and how a loop works just briefly so imagine something like uh, linkedin here so when you are becoming a new user on linkedin one of the first things that linkedin wants you to do is to invite your friends so i have set up my linkedin profile and i've kind of uh, filled out my cv and everything and and then they are basically prompting me oh you have uh, no people in your network why not invite someone and typically what they did in the beginning here was that they wanted you to import your address book so when i signed up for linkedin they prompted me to invite 
my, my friends or my colleagues to LinkedIn. And then of course, what happened was that the people that I invited, some of the people that got my invitation, they also ended up signing up for LinkedIn. And when they signed up for LinkedIn, then they were also prompted to invite their network. And then of course they invited their network. Some of those people also ended up signing up and they also got prompted to invite their network. And then it basically spins like a loop. So that's kind of like how virality is made. There's a method to build these type of loops. And there's in, 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 in my opinion, five different things that you have to have in, in place, but kind of like just to get started here. So virality can also be divided into different, uh, different way of thinking of virality. One of them is word of mouth. Another one is incentivized that you can incentivize people like with the, with LinkedIn. Another one is casual contact. That's something like the hot, uh, hotmail example where people can kind of see this was made with hot, uh, hotmail in the button of an email. And there's also organic and, and, and I mean, you have to be deeply understanding your product and your users and kind of like maybe also even looking at what are your competitors doing in order for you to build loops, the, the right rival loops. But the thing is not building the loops. The thing is actually understanding how to improve upon them. So what you need to understand here is that let's say something like LinkedIn. So they have a conversion rate on signing up. A percentage of the people who sign up to LinkedIn also end up inviting their users or their friends, colleagues. A percentage of the people that is invited. So let's say I invite 100 people. A percentage of those people are also converting. And then of course, when I have sent out this email, a percentage of the people who sees this email will go to the landing page. A percentage of those people who come to the landing page will also, I mean, will sign up as well. And a percentage of those people will then invite their network. But you have to understand all the different metrics and you have to understand the funnel here in order for you to optimize it. So let's say in, in, in the LinkedIn example here, I can optimize the landing pages. So there's multiple different landing pages that my audience is seeing here. And there's also multiple different emails that they're seeing. And the pop-up that they're seeing is also different. And I want to make the incentive in, in, um, the incentive way better. So what are they actually getting out of inviting these people? I need to optimize on all these different things and you can work on your copy, you can work on the visuals and all of these different things. And that is how you win. It's easy to set up a viral loop in my opinion, but you have to understand all the different factors going into how you can make it is a great, great loop. And then you have to optimize on all of these different things and make your viral loop better than the other ones. So it's not about, you could say, just creating it. It's about how you improve it. Provide. Awesome. I get the gist of it. And I definitely believe this is going to take more than <laughs> and, uh, so I'll, I'll jump to the last uh, one or two questions. Uh, this is kind of a straightforward. I understand there is no one size fits all. So I'll just try and break it down. Uh, apart from the usual channels like Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, for B2B companies, what should we be looking at? <laughs> Do you have anything well, in mind? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, it depends on what your stage is again. Mm-hmm. Think about what are, the, what are the different traction channels here? Okay, I'll be specific. For growth, Apart from the obvious channels, do you see anything that is gaining traction, say YouTube, Quora, or whatever it is? 
So again, again, I mean, if you if you got the, if you're just getting started, think, think about the different traction channels. Where are your audience? How can you get your message in front of those audiences? If you already have traction and you already have product market fit, think about how you can scale it. And where you scale it, it's also depending on where is your audience actually using their time. I mean, that's the most important thing. And then, of course, you can think about uh, different uh, acquisition channels here. Something like making your product do a lot of the work. That's the way to go, in my opinion. Most companies can get a lot of traffic, but it's very, it's, it's, it's very rare that the companies that are getting this traffic is also making their product work for them. Exactly. Like with LinkedIn, for example, but all the best companies out there, the most successful companies, they have different loops built into it, what mm -hmm. I call growth loops. And it doesn't have to be viral loops. It can be paid acquisition loops. It can be sales loops. It can be content loops. And there's also multiple different ways of doing these things. Um, so I guess that will be my answer. <laughs> I knew there wouldn't be an exact answer, but still, I just wanted to give it a shot. Uh, uh, anyway, that's all from us for today, Nikki. Thank you very much for your time. And it was a wonderful session. Uh, so Nikki, before you go, where can people follow you? Because I'm definitely sure like people will have more and more questions once they listen to it. And if they want to reach out, where should they reach out? <laughs> Thank you so much. And I mean, the pleasure is all mine for being on your show. And I really hope that you and your audience have gotten a lot of value out of this. Otherwise, it, it isn't fun to, to be a guest on any podcast. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, I have a podcast as well. It's called Out of Growth, where I interview growth leaders. Uh, to, today, actually, I'm interviewing um, the head of growth at growthhackers.com, uh, which is the largest community for growth hackers in the world. Um, but otherwise, LinkedIn is a great way to connect with me. Feel free to connect and ask me any questions that you may have. Uh, otherwise, uh, if uh, Vivek here is uh, tagging me on uh, his uh, content uh, post with this episode, please I'll comment. Do that. Yeah, please comment there as well and maybe tag me in, in, in those posts. And then, of course, I'll be happy to reply to your answers or to your questions. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, so, uh, people who are listening will be tagging. Uh, Nikki's podcast, Out of Growth. Please feel free to check it out and do visit his LinkedIn profile and ask him questions if you have any. And uh, thanks for joining us in this session. And thanks a lot, Nikki. Have a wonderful you, day. You're most welcome. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. Stay tuned to our weekly upcoming episodes with more sales and marketing leaders from around the globe. We are on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher as well. Subscribe to get notified when a new episode is out. And please do leave us a review if you're on Apple. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey!